happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 163 for January 29th, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you this evening, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am well and glad to be back. Uh, after a week's hiatus and travels, I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School here in Oklahoma City. And yes, uh, it, it, it's amazing to me still. It's like open the laptop and five minutes later, thanks to StreamYard, here we are online. So we have uh, a number of links tonight that we're going to discuss. First, you've got to give us a little weather update, though. Cold in Missoula, perhaps? Bizarre, actually. Um, there was one forecast. It's wavered a bit. That suggested we'd hit 60 on Saturday. And that's just plain weird. So tonight, I think we probably, we probably just hit freezing. It was in the lower 40s today. Very pleasant if, you know, you're not afraid that, that the state will light on fire, uh, later this year if we don't get enough moisture. But yeah, it, it feels like that, that there are some dramatic weather, uh, uh, weather shifts and that Western Montana is looking more like Northern Idaho or, or Eastern Washington in regards to the summer weather. What about you? Yeah, I mean, it's we're, we're mild. We we had a lot of rain, a ton of rain yesterday, and the band of snow was, you know, just just north and west of us, so we just saw rain. You got down just maybe mid-30s, but uh, it would have been a ton of snow if we had had colder temperatures. But, you know, back up warmer today, and we are, I don't know, we, we have, I've got my Ed Camp Tulsa shirt on tonight, and um, we've got our Ed Camp OKC I think it's like maybe the ninth one, eighth or ninth. And so it's the last weekend in February. So inevitably, if we have an ice storm, you know, that will probably be the weekend. But we will uh, we'll see. So I guess, you know, enjoy enjoy what you can. But uh, we, we, we were able to have a, uh, a a bit of fire when we had we, we had we had like literally 30 minutes of snow flurries, you know, a couple weeks ago. So. Mild, mild here. But my parents have gotten a ton of snow in Kansas, not that far away. So it just depends on where you are. And I've also found people are always like, the weather here is so changeable. I think that's true just about anywhere. I've never. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. there are some places it's always called Houston. Yeah. Houston kind of has the same weather, but. Right, right. Montana, uh, the phrase here is that if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. And that's a um, yeah, I think that that might be a universal phenomenon. Right. All right. Well, hey, we've gotten our weather out of the way. What are we really here to talk about tonight? Well, the Antic Situation is a podcast where we take a look at the headlines from across the techosphere, and we try to shoot them through the educational prism. In other words, taking what's going on in the broader tech industry and discussing whether or not it has implications in K-12 classrooms and what those implications might be. Our links are always available at our website, www.edtechsr.com, where you can find both show notes, so the specific links we talked about, and also you can go to our massive link dump document, which which has thousands and thousands of links going back to the very first episode oh so long ago, including a lot of stuff we don't talk about. And we're just curious, the things that crossed our mind this week that we may or may not have talked about in the show itself, it's a great list of, of kind of reading fodder for you. So, Wes, you took the lead this week on links. Thank you so much for that. Can you give me a sense of where you'd like to start? 
Yes, I, I want to start with security. So, you know, this has been a normal title for us. In fact, we'll preview for you. If you're not looking at the, the doc, we kind of give some, uh, you know, topic titles for our different sections. So this week, Alex, we have Google, Chrome OS, Microsoft, AI, security, YouTube, Apple, privacy hardware, and miscellaneous. So I will take security for 500. Um, uh, so, this is kind of an amazing, amazing article. Um, this is from Vice Magazine on January 27th. It says, leaked documents expose the secretive market for your web browsing data. And <clears throat> this article is a bit of a warning to everyone for the software that you might install on your computer or your smartphone, you know, kind of what you sign up for. And so Avast, A-V-A-S-T, is an antivirus um, company, and you know I am thankful to to mostly be an Apple using computer guy and also Chrome, and you know my my use of Windows ha- has been uh, limited as a technology director. I was definitely in the Windows world, you know, far more than I. Well, I don't know. I, I was I, I was a computer lab teacher way back in the day, you know, in the late nineties. Um, but anyway. <laughs> You know, different software programs go in and out of vogue, and and I'll do a shout out to my friend Miguel Gulen, who is always a great source of and has been, you know, free software, you know, good tools to use. And one of the things that you've just had to do, especially with Windows systems, has been run antivirus software. Well, it turns out that Avast was selling the data that it was collecting for people, and in some cases. It was selling exact feed, uh, click feed. So it says the documents from a subsidiary of Avast uh, shine light on a secretive sale and supply chain of people's internet browsing histories. They show that the Avast antivirus program installed on a person's computer collected data, and then the company was called JumpShot. It actually still is. That repackages it in different products sold to companies uh, like Google, Yelp, Microsoft, McKinsey, Pepsi, Home Depot, Condé Nast. And it says some clients paid millions of dollars for products that include a so-called all clicks feed, which can track user behavior, clicks and movement across websites in highly precise detail. So I think this is interesting in in several respects, um, but one is certainly privacy because we have a number of people saying, you know, privacy is dead. Hey, I don't really care. I have nothing to hide. But like really every single thing that you would search for that you would ever put in your computer, I mean, no problem uh, having a company, you know, own that. So we've said this before on the um, you know show a lot of times if there there is no, you know, quote unquote price for the product you're using, then you may be the product. We live in this surveillance capitalism world where, you know, Facebook as well as Google and other companies are selling our data for, you know, the opportunity that we have, which I think is great in many cases to use their products. But this was a case too where, you know, folks were not being notified in advance. And so I think this also speaks to the important role of consumer protection, you know, think Ralph Nader, think the ways in which we don't want, you know, things to be, um, you know, labeled in, in a way that would be misleading. Um, we certainly don't want harmful products to be sold. And, you know, people need to know, hey, if I'm getting this free antivirus software, but, you know, you're recording every click that I take on my computer and then selling it to somebody, you know, that's information that we need to have. So 
Jason, have you been in a vast computer virus user or virus user, um, antivirus <laughs> software user? And then, you know, what, what are, what are your thoughts? Is this, does this come as a surprise? Or are you kind of thinking this is just maybe normal for the world of, uh, free software companies? Well, I, I have been an Avast user in the past, and it used to be my preferred antivirus, a free antivirus product, because it was simple to install. It seemed to be effective. I mean, I, I've had instances where malware is, I've downloaded malware, or I've, I've installed a, um, a program from um, kind of free internet world, and I got scammed to, to go to a link that had a, a malware payload into it. And, and this is on, on Windows platforms, and Avast seemed to work fine. But I, I guess I was both surprised, not surprised by this and also a little terrified because I think, you know, you mentioned this notion that free products aren't free, that there is something, there, there's something in the trade there that makes it a, um, a, a commercially viable business to be able to offer a free software, free effective software suite. But I guess the, the bottom line for me is that um, we, we just have to be careful. And I think part of the problem that we're running into in 2020 is that we've had 20 years of free internet services to this point, right? You pay your, you know, uh, 990 a month, 999 a month AOL or your, uh, uh, 9999 DSL line, um, or fiber line to get super fast internet. And from there, everything or much of the internet is quote unquote free. But something I've become very acutely aware of is that as a, as a personal internet user, I should be paying for services that I, I value, right? And, 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 and as an example of that, I know for a fact that, um, Google, you know, the free service they give off, there's some advertising trade-off for that, but I also give them money and I buy personal, um, uh, uh, Google services as part of, uh, Google for small business that I utilize to, to utilize most of their apps. I don't use a lot of the free stuff either in exchange for, cause I just don't want advertising targeted towards me. And, um, you know, it's, it's a phenomenon we have to be aware of, right? But it goes back to our mantra all the time that this is a digital citizenship question and understanding how the internet is funded, understanding that the free nature of the internet is really not, um, uh, as free as it comes off. And, and also to schools, if you value something and you don't want the data trade, the answer isn't to ignore the, the, the data issue or privacy issues. It's certainly not um, to stop using the internet. It's to figure out ways to fund meaningful tools and services that you can use to, to, to help your students. Don't get me wrong. I use plenty of free uh, services. Right now, my favorite free service is Wakelet. Wakelet's an, a, great, a great playlist maker, and I'm starting to create a Wakelet that goes with all my presentations. So instead of putting links to on slides to articles, and, and I sometimes joke that when I do conference presentations, I'm actually going to be assigning homework at the end of the presentation because I do ask my listeners and viewers to go and read some additional articles if they're interested in the topic, but Wakelet's a great tool for that. I don't know how Wakelet makes money, but I'm owed uh, or I owe myself an explanation if that's the case. And if they get to a point where they have a non-free tier, I'm using the tool enough that I should pay for it. So I think that's an incredibly important part of this discussion. Yep, most definitely. All right. Where to next? Well, let's talk Chromebooks for a couple of moments. Um, last week was the BETT conference in London, and I know a lot of, of EdTech folks were from the, this side of the pond were at that conference, but there were two announcements related to Chromebooks that I think are worthy of, of thought and discussion because they will have an impact on schools. The first one is that Google has announced that starting with all new Chromebooks in 2020, 
Chromebooks will now have an eight-year support life. In other words, from the day they are released, Google will release updates for that Chromebook for eight calendar years before they shut off the updates. And this is something we've talked about probably half dozen times in the past. Chromebooks come with expiration dates, right? They are not forever technology products. And while I like the simplicity of Chromebooks and I like to buy more premium Chromebooks, I've run into this issue. I had an original Chromebook uh, Pixel 13, which is, uh, I'm sorry, 2013 edition, which was one of the first high-end Chromebooks. It's a beautiful Google-built device with a touchscreen and high-resolution display. That stopped receiving updates in, two, I think it was late 2018 or early 2019. The Chromebook Pixel um, 2015 ends updates in 2021, six years after. And although they've been incrementally increasing the amount of time, it was five years and six and a half years, and then some were extended out to seven, and now all of them are eight. Eight years is a reasonable bargain, I think, when it comes to updates. And even the most um, uh, money-savvy of schools, let's put it that way, would find you know eight years of a technology product to be, I would think, a relatively meaningful life. I do want to say, however, and, and I'm working a blog post here, and I don't know if it's going to ever be a, 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 a well-thought-through argument enough to post. That's all well and good, but I do think there is a natural end to the Chromebook's life if you are buying lower-grade hardware. And something that I have learned personally, and, and as I've mentioned in the past, I'm a full-time Chromebook user. I use a Chromebook as my mobile platform. I use a Chromebox at work. Um, I generally use a, a cloud-ready box at home, which is... You are the chromiest person I know, Jason. Yeah, I'm pretty chromey. Very, you know, strong compliment. Yeah, yeah. That's, I am very chromey, as a matter of fact. Um, and the... Uh, but one thing I've learned over time, and I first, I mean, I first bought an early Samsung Chromebook that was kind of meh, and then I did buy a Chromebook in 2014 after my beloved MacBook Air 11 died in a battle with a cup of coffee, and that, by the way, that Chromebook is now not being updated either. I went and checked the other day, but, you know, the ones with... ARM, low-powered ARM processors, two gigabytes of RAM. I would even argue four gigabytes of RAM is starting to become a, a tested by, um, you know, power users. Uh, that is not a good experience. It's not a good experience with a new Chromebook. It's not a, a good experience with an old Chromebook. And I don't want schools to be lured into the notion that if you spend, you know, $120 a Chromebook in 2020, that your students are going to be good to go until 20. 28, because I just don't think that that's very realistic and that, you know, if you are investing in an i3 chip or an i5 chip or the M3 chip, and then some of the ARM processors, higher in ARM processors are starting to, to become sufficiently speedy, but I do think you need to think about the end user in mind if you are purchasing for the long haul. None of my current Chromebooks will go to 2028. I've not purchased a, a, a new one in 2020. I, I'm unlikely to do so, I think. But I do think it's, it's, it's something I'm going to experiment a little more with. And I think I do owe it to my, those that I advocate to that I need to probably grab a typical school Chromebook and see if I can get away with that as a power user. Cause I think that's part of that discussion. So Wes, you have war and IT hat before does an eight year lifespan for updates change the calculus for you as an IT director when it comes to adopting Chromebooks. 
it's hugely important. <clears throat> the reason I, I was unable to, to, you know, and we, we both had some travel and different conflicts last week. I was with a team of uh, eight other educators from our school visiting four other schools in the Dallas area as we contemplate our options for one-to-one uh, laptops in our middle school. Um, not for next year. We're looking probably a year and a half. We visited a Chromebook school. We visited a Microsoft uh, Windows Surface Book, uh, what, Surface Book 2, Surface Book Pro 2, whatever. Latest uh, top-end Microsoft tablet. Um, and then uh, a Mac-using school. Primarily saw MacBooks. There are some iPads there. And then we also went to a BYOD school. And so <clears throat> looking at, you know, warranties and refresh and how long are you going to have these devices, uh, it's it's hugely important. It's really amazing. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I'm definitely going to be writing some blog posts about this. <clears throat> and I might even try to, you know, get something else published. Because, you know, one of these schools, Ursuline Academy, which was founded in the, in the uh, I think, 1870s, you know, has been one-to-one since 1996. Melinda Gates is a graduate of their school. And they were with, uh, with Toshiba, I think, for like 18 years. And they, they switched to Microsoft three years ago. But, I mean, there is just such different cultures and stories that people have. Um, and one of the things that I walked away with, we've been using a lot of Chrome at our school. We have seven different Chromebook carts in our middle school. And, you know, we have somewhere around 270 or so uh, students in fifth through eighth grade. The easiest decision for us would be to go with Chrome because it's being utilized so much. We've been at Google school for over 10 years and, you know, for Google to extend support in that way, um, you know, put that together with a third party company that's going to warranty for accidental, you know, water damage, uh, theft, other kinds of things. It's huge. So we are looking at Chromebooks that are coming off of warranty or going out of warranty, I should say, uh, this summer, the refresh cycle. Uh, it's really important. So I don't think that uh, an extended warranty like that by itself, you know, is going to be the selling point, but it's it's certainly important. And it's also important in this whole context to think about how Chrome is an operating system that was built from the ground up by Google to be much better than the legacy OSs like Windows OS and even Mac OS that's built on Linux and to make it so that it can be truly a cloud managed and, and much more secure environment. You know, we have our admin console in Google set to just randomly update at different times, you know, overload your internet pipe with updates. So, you know, all of our devices just on their own, stay up to date, and we're able to do that kind of thing. We, we aren't, we we can and do manage things in other ways with other kinds of tools. But having used a lot of said tools, you know, Chrome is phenomenally easy. So I'm very glad to see Google moving in that direction. Um, what I do think, and and this is I have to go down this rabbit hole a lot, but I want to know, and and this is a shout out to anybody who is doing the most with Chrome. Um, tablet technology as far as styluses and writing. Uh, the Microsoft school, like I said, it was really impressive. I saw a lesson uh, as a calculus AB class being taught and, you know, they were doing derivatives together using OneNote. It was super impressive, the ease with which they were able to share each other's screens and being able to make their work transparent to each other. It was like, wow, that was not, it wasn't impressive on a media you know, production or something or, you know, alternative assignment sort of way, but just in the way that the thinking and the work of the students and teacher were 
were readily visible to each other and the way that we could just write. And that's one of the things that I really find myself wanting both personally and then also for students is like the whole 360. I want to be able to type. I want to be able to speak to text. I want to be able to draw and annotate. And so if you or anybody, Jason, knows of some schools that are just really doing phenomenal stuff with like the Lenovo, um, we have 300Es, the 500E might be the newer brand. <clears throat> it's like a you know, yoga style where you can you know, rotate it right on over and you've got the, the touch interface. Um, anyway, I'm, I want to see Google push that and, and get even better with that with hardware. Yep, absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. And then a, just a quick related article. Google's also announced that they are going to increase the price of a device's management software. And so for those of you that are aware of Chrome management, you you buy a Chromebook and then if you want to manage the Chromebook using a, a Google apps or I say, I'm sorry, Google suite domain, you have to spend, it used to be $30 and now it's $38. And part of what Google is saying is that now that, you know, these devices are, you know, when bought new can last up to eight years that, that there's more value there and that they'd be providing more services for a longer amount of time. And so they want to increase the price of that, which I find to be personally quite reasonable. I think in light of how easy it is to maintain um, Chrome uh, devices on the management side of this, I think $38 per device, which by the way, you should absolutely make sure that that's worked into the price if you're working with an educational vendor. Don't buy those separately unless you're getting some kind of crazy deal on the Chrome devices instead, just buy those along with the Chrome devices. And then if Mike Castanelli, my partner in crime in the Digital Academy were here, he would tell you you should also work in what's referred to as white glove service, which is they basically set them up on your domain. So all you have to do is open them up and sign into them. But that's something to keep in mind as well. Yeah. When I came to Cassie School in July of 2015, we were not paying any kind of uh, license fee for any of the Chromebooks that we had, any of the devices, actually. And that was uh, a very important transition that we made. So we had to aftermarket purchase those for existing Chromebooks. And then as we purchased new ones, uh, it's just it's really silly if you are a school or any other kind of enterprise to not manage your devices with mobile management and you know chrome's management console is really unparalleled i mean we've i've used three different um what are they called mobile device management or mdm platforms to manage uh ipads and uh you know functions are similar but you know chrome is fantastic um i'd like to pick up a chrome article as well um and this is actually I guess, yeah, this is more of an Android one, but this is from Ars Technica on January 27th. Google's upcoming AirDrop clone gets an early demo on video. This is fantastic. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners are, you know, familiar with AirDrop on iOS, but it is really a super quote unquote magical technology. Uh, that's, that's phenomenal. We were, we were in Jackson Hole, Wyoming a few summers ago on a raft trip and you know, one of the things not everybody realizes is to send a media like photos or video from one phone to another or actually any iOS device to any macOS device. You do not have to be in a Wi-Fi area. You do not have to be on the same Wi-Fi network. Um, it in, and this is what Google is developing, too. So it initially makes a Bluetooth connection close you know, proximity, and then once they're connected, it uses Wi-Fi for, the, quote, the heavy lifting of sending the files. And so anyway, we had, we had been on a raft trip with this other family on the Snake River, and, you know, we both had taken pictures of each other, and so we're just, 
you know, in the, in the, the van or whatever, driving back to the, the hotel. And then we're airdropping back and forth. It was a very geeky moment, but I have, I have wanted to have this on Android. This has probably been, you know, it's more than five years ago when I was doing in, instructional coaching in Yukon, working on like a paper slide video project where kids use their own devices and they take their pictures. You know, how do you transfer those if you've got photos on multiple devices and you need to bring them together? And so we had found some different apps, never found anything great. And so the article says they are building this into Google's Play services. And that's good news from a compatibility standpoint, because basically every Android device has Google Play. And so, you know, there'll probably be a point at which if you have a super duper old Android, it's not going to work. But this is a way to send files back and forth over Wi-Fi, even when you don't have an Internet connection. I think that's really good news for Android users. So I know, Jason, you have been an Android user at uh, times. Uh, is this good news? It is good news. The only unfortunate piece about this is, is that I think I am the only Android user in a sea of iOS users. So I think at work now, two people join me on Android and the balance of folks at work iOS. And then my entire family is, is iOS, except for um, my dad, who's got an Android phone. And uh, I see Dr. Fryer's pointing to his Apple Watch. And, and, and to be clear, I do have a Geek of the Week I'll share later. That I think I found my alternative to, or at least a, uh, an interesting, nerdy alternative to uh, the Android Wear devices, which have not been super satisfying for me. I have a, I did buy a newer one over Christmas that I, I enjoy. And there's supposed to be better ones out in 2020, according to news out of the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. But yeah, definitely that the case. I think it's a great technology, but it is definitely not what I would refer to as um, a, a game changer for me to move back over to the Apple universe. Oh, yeah. But it's good to see that. And that, you know, it's also one of these cases where I think we're seeing sort of the, what's it called, the floor raised in terms of function. Yeah. One of the big things we need to see. And of course, it'd be great for that to be cross-platform. Apple enjoys having and, and you know can make some certain technologies like AirPlay as well as um, AirDrop. You know, it's a it's a proprietary thing. Um, but I I want to see enterprise wireless, you know, streaming, enterprise manageable Chromecast streaming um, for for Chrome devices. And anyway, I don't think we quite have that yet. At least we haven't been able to find that. So anyway, maybe that will come as well. Uh, where should we go to next? Well, let me tell an interesting story that, that happened, uh, it's been happening over the last couple of, of, of weeks. And I think it's, it's interesting because going back to our earlier discussion about the length of time that, that Chromebooks are more available to use when you purchase them new, um, Sonos is the maker of high end audio equipment. And I have never personally been a Sonos user, but the people that I know that are Sonos users are incredibly dedicated Sonos users. They have a proprietary technology that allows you to plug in speakers around your house and you can do things like instantly sync them. They're very high quality speakers. And for audio files, it is a go-to set of, of, of devices. Um, and Sonos announced uh, several weeks back that they were um, uh, uh, going to offer users of older Sonos uh, devices uh, uh, the opportunity to upgrade to a new device um, in uh, a, a kind of an interesting way. You could take your Sonos devices no longer support it. You could put it into some kind of special mode, like retirement mode, I can't remember what the name of it was, but essentially it renders the hardware 
worthless because it no longer works. The, the software shut itself down. Recycling mode, I'm sorry, is the name of the mode. And then after you put it into recycling mode, you send it to a hardware recycler and then you can get $30 or 30% off new Sonos equipment. And the problem, of course, is, is that Sonos is incredibly expensive equipment. And a lot of the Sonos users that were being left out in the cold were, I think, understandably crisp about the fact that they were going to lose their hardware, right? It was going to be put in this retirement mode. And yet the, the, the it was still very functional. And, um, the CEO of Sonos uh, finally said last week, and, and the article I'm pointing to uh, is from The Verge um, on, on January 23rd. CEO says, basically, we screwed up. We, we shouldn't be doing this. We should support it for as long as it's practically able to support. And, and basically, Sonos is now going to support, instead of this recycling mode, they're going to um, support this hardware as long as it's practically possible to do so. It may not get all new features, which you know is not that uncommon if you use, for example, Apple products. Those are updated for usually a long time, but new features start to disappear. I think that's kind of an interesting phenomenon. The reason why I thought about this in context of education is that the education market is so interesting in comparison to certainly power users and passionate users of electronics in the personal world, but also in a lot of cases, businesses as well, because the longer the lifespan of tech, the more likely it is to be attractive, I think, to school buyers. And Sonos is not technology that that I would imagine is being adopted commonly or if at all in schools. But this notion that, you know, hardware manufacturers are trying to get you to upgrade, maybe for new features, maybe to get more money out of you by purposely disabling equipment, that seems, you know, pretty challenging to me. Absolutely. Well, hey, let's uh, put on our tinfoil hats, shall we, and uh, jump down a rabbit hole. This will link to my geek of the week, but I put this also under the security headline, and this is from the Washington Post, <coughs> pardon me, on January 22nd. The headline is, UN report Saudi crown prince was involved in alleged hacking of Bezos' phone. And, of course, Bezos is referring to Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, and I think possibly, like, the wealthiest person in the world. I think that not, that title changes, but I think he may, may have that uh, now. And you may remember, and maybe like a lot of other people, <coughs> a lot of other people, <coughs> pardon me, when I heard this, I kind of was like, that's kind of bizarro is, you know, is this headline like, you know, some weird conspiracy theory? Could this really happen? Um, you know, Bezos was accusing and his team was accusing Saudi Arabia of actually hacking his phone. And you may think, well, why the heck would Saudi Arabia want to do that? Well, you know, uh, Bezos owns a major media company. Like, doesn't he own the Washington Post? Is that he the did. one that? Yeah. And, um, you know, so he's a, a very powerful and influential guy. Well, the headline. OK, so there's different layers of this. Um, <laughs> the headline is misleading. It says U.N. report. Well, it was not a U.N. directed security group that did this. There was a third party group, which I think was actually employed by Bezos or Amazon to investigate this. And they released a, a report that said high probability. <laughs> And so this is an actual direct text message on WhatsApp. So at some point, the Saudi crown prince, well, yeah, the crown prince, who goes by the name of MBS. And by the way, right, we've talked about Jamal Khashoggi. And one of the things which there's a lot of consensus around is that the the Saudi crown prince, you know, ordered the dismemberment of, of, of this, you know, journalist who is a United States citizen in 
embassy of Turkey, um, what, about a year ago. So at some point, MBS has met Jeff Bezos. They've exchanged WhatsApp, you know, numbers. So they have direct access to each other. And so evidently he sent him a link, which he clicked on that compromised his phone and then made a deluge of data, personal photos and all kinds of things upload to a server, which the Saudis were then able to have and use and release. And we'll probably talk a little bit about some election stuff. Um, Peggy George, who is in our chat room and watching tonight, we appreciate, has <clears throat> forwarded us some really good links for students to use and teachers related to the election. But when it comes to election hacking and this kind of thing, um, well, from a media literacy standpoint, like this headline's misleading because the UN report, you know, wasn't, was, it, it was not created by the United Nations that, that, you know, reached this conclusion. So media literacy, be, be careful of your headlines and everything else. <clears throat> I've put a link and I'll put this in the show notes as well to a lesson I've used the last two trimesters. It's probably one of my favorite lessons and I'll share it at ISTE. I'm going to get to do an ISTE session about media literacy for middle school. And I call it don't get tricked online. But, you know, one of the videos that I have in here, it's so crazy to even think this is real. Um, but there's this service that you can start off spending as little as like $30 or something called the spinner, where when you get somebody to click a link, it sets a cookie that basically <laughs> launches a campaign that they're going to subconsciously get in their social media feed articles of whatever you want, whether it's settle out of court or, you know, propose marriage to me or stop riding motorcycles. They use as an example. It's kind of weird. One click, ladies and gentlemen, that is one of the takeaways here is that you and I, who are probably not going to be the target of what's called a spear phishing attack. And that's when a group or individual is specifically targeting us, you know, to, you know, take us down and, and, you know, get access to, to our data. So, you know, J Jason and I uh, are appreciative of all of you that are listening, but, you know, just full disclosure, we are, we're not going to, I don't think be the, the targets of any kind of attacks like this, but who knows? Uh, what is important to know is that you can compromise your device with a single click. And even though Apple people, and I put myself in this camp have really <clears throat> probably been a little bit too, um, you know, self-assured when it comes to security, thinking that, hey, we're using Mac, Mac stuff, iOS, we're immune. Uh, that is, that is not the case. So definitely a bit of a rabbit hole there in terms of, you know, is this conspiracy theory? Is this real headline? But evidently this sounds, you know, like it's, it's legit and it points to how easily our devices can be compromised. So, I think, and I don't know, Jason, if we've seen security groups recommending this, I think that we should have probably as families an, an annual hygienic cleansing where we erase all the content on our devices like once a year, kind of like maybe over the summer, and you just reinstall. You know, you have stuff backed up, and and that's really, you know, the and even if – you, you could still have some, some malware, you know, that's part of your backup. So even when you restore, something could be persistent. But thoughts about this? Are you surprised that Saudi Arabia would go to such lengths to acquire personal data of the Amazon CEO? Um, I'm not surprised by that in part because I know that a lot of the intelligence work that has happened in the world in the last 15 years has been based on Internet technologies and often have taken 
uh, advantage of the fact that a lot of people just don't understand what good security looks like, personal security looks like. And, and additionally, I guess I wouldn't have been cautious about clicking on a video of someone who I had added to a chat service, right? That's just not something that I would be suspicious of. So, you know, I, oh, yeah, because it wasn't like a spam message. This is no. coming directly from somebody you've exchanged no. your number with. Yeah. And, you know, and I, 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 you know, obviously I do not work in the world of international intrigue. So I can't imagine, you know, like, as you mentioned, Wes, that we ourselves, we targets for this, but it doesn't make it any less concerning. And, you know, um, we, we got to figure out the ways to securely connect with one another because the privacy thing is critical. And I will say this on an internet safety, digital citizenship, parent university education basis, you know, looking a little bit into uh, parental controls and software. There are a large number of software programs out there today masquerading themselves as parents monitor your teens, yeah. but they absolutely can be used to, uh, to track and stalk people. Even when you think about dating. So, you know, two, two of our kids now are in college and, you know, Tinder is a thing, right? <clears throat> and so the, the ways in which you meet people and exchange information, um, you know, one of, one of the things that, that folks can do in sending you a link is not just, you know, subconsciously send, send things into your social media feeds, but, you know, they can, they can compromise your device to activate it, to activate your microphone, to activate your camera, to not have the little light come on when you're like, right now my, my, you know, FaceTime camera light is on and I know it's active, but there's ways <laughs> these things could be activated, you know, surreptitiously. And so, uh, it's, we'd say this a lot, you know, be careful out there, you know, kids, it's dangerous, but, um, part of the role. In fact, I'm a, now a finalist for a TEDx event. It'll be in September, but I have to put my, I have to do a, a practice speech about like February 21st. And my topic is technology fear therapy. And I think it is a challenge to try and help people be aware of these issues and not frozen by fear and focus on some really practical things that we need to do. So certainly one of the things we need to do is be aware of the threats, be aware of the dangers. <clears throat> and one of the challenges with technology is many of these are invisible to us, right? Unlike getting in your car when you see other vehicles and pedestrians and animals or whatever you're going to, you know, possibly, you know, have, have a, uh, an interaction with out there. You can see that stuff with technology. There's a lot of things that are hidden. So I think that's one of the important roles we have, not only, you know, with students and other, you know, teachers and colleagues, but with our family members. And Jason's talked multiple times. He, he is the knifer family IT guy. So, <clears throat> you know, somebody, somebody needs to step up to some of these kinds of things and realizing the danger that is present in, in clicking a link. And also I think the importance of periodically, you know, wiping your device so you can try to ensure that you're not using a compromised device. All those are important things. Maybe Jason, and this would be your, uh, your next Kickstarter idea. <clears throat> we need to have a little alert on the, the Wi-Fi to be able to, you know, let us know when there's a ton of data that's unusual and weird being sent, you know, up, up the chain, so to speak, or uploaded. Cause that evidently is what happened to Bezos is as soon as this was compromised, you know, there was, there was tons of data that was being uploaded. And so on a school firewall or, you know, a school system, you might have an intrusion protection system, which is going to be monitoring that kind of stuff, right? So if a computer starts, you know, uploading a lot of data to some weird IP address, you know, network administrators and people like that will become aware of it. So maybe that will be, you know, 
generation 2030 of the Google Wi-Fi. And that'll be one of the features, you know, kind of like having a smoke alarm in your house to say, whoa, hey, did you know that, you know, Wes's iPhone has just started to upload, you know, gigabytes of data to some, you know, weird website in the middle of the night. I don't think anybody has that functionality built in today, but I bet there's somebody listening to this who's used a Raspberry Pi and you probably code that by hand. So if you if you do, let us know and we'll be sure to put it into our show notes. Yep, absolutely. So, all right. What else? So let me let me take us into kind of a, another direction here. Uh, an article from the Register on January twenty fourth notes that um, Apple is telling the EU that it will not adopt a common charger and a charger standard. And this has been a long going debate between Apple and uh, the EU. The EU really wants everyone to use the same kind of technology to charge your mobile phones, and their concern is e waste. Right, that you update from one phone to the other, and if everything had the same charging technology, then you could go buy one charger once and then uh, use it across all of your phones and call it good. And, of course, the uh, five years ago, that standard was micro USB. That was the preferred standard uh, by the EU because it was in, in the predominance of phones, uh, specifically Windows phones and Android phones, and now that's USB-C. And although the good folks at Apple have adopted USB-C in, in some way, shape, or form, it's what powers their, their MacBooks now, it what powers uh, some of their iPads, for example, it appears that uh, Apple will not give up the so-called lightning connector, which is their proprietary technology for doing that. And I have to say, and by the way, there's a lot of articles back and forth on this, uh, people talking about the extraordinary uh, number of old cables they have in their homes and boxes of electronic cables that people couldn't feel they could take to the recycler or perhaps uh, throw away into the trash. And I have to say, I think this is a bad idea on Apple's part. I think if we could all be on the same charging standard, it just makes the world better. And something that's happened to me since I kind of moved over to USB-C, and I would say it's it's probably been about 18 months since I got to a point that everything, with the exception of my chargeable headphones, which are still on US micro USB, that everything is USB-C. And it's not as easy as that, unfortunately. There are different uh, uh, levels of chargers, uh, different speeds of chargers. There is some incompatibility still in the USB-C standard, but the fact that I can go to a conference, for example, and next week I start about six weeks of, of travel, various work and personal uh, travel uh, for six or so weeks, and I have a travel bag that I take with me, and the fact that I can take two pretty quality chargers and cover my laptop and my phone and my tablet is pretty great. And so, Wes, I know you're in an Apple household and you are an Apple Pro user yourself. Does abandoning these standards make sense for an Apple user too, or is that just my bias as an Android fanboy? Well, I mean... Right now, I'm using USB-C completely for my connections here. In fact, I I had to switch because uh, <clears throat> I hadn't charged my iPad, and and so my MacBook Pro, you know, is running on uh, USB-C connection, and I just unplugged it and I just I plugged my iPad in because I've got, um, you know, one of the one of the newer iPads, which is anyway maybe I don't know it was maybe a test or something like that. I I agree with you that I think. Charging standards, it, unfortunately, companies, I think, have seen, and Apple's in this boat, you know, oh, new device, got to have a new attachment, you know, got to have a new adapter, um, whether that's for power or anything is a opportunity for income. So, yes, that would be a good thing to see. And I don't know if that's something that a consumer group could really push for or not, 
Um, but I would, I would certainly like to see, see more of that. Um, so anyway, I don't, I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but I do know that <clears throat> we're still in a boat where even to, you know, today somebody was talking, they saw my laptop like, Oh, look, that's new. And I said, yeah, but remember, I can't put a USB, you know, USB flash drive in here. You know, I have to have an adapter e- even to plug into a projector if I'm not airplane or something like that. Right. So yeah. we're, we're, we're going to continue for the foreseeable future <clears throat> to be in this sort of, you know, uh, adapter Hades of, uh, you know, ha- having to pay careful attention, um, depending on our device that, that we've got, that we, we bring whatever we're going to need to connect to, you know, VGA, HDMI, uh, power or whatever. Um, for us as a school, that was a big reason for us to stay with the MacBook Air laptop that had USB A connectors because that's how, you know, the, the smart boards that we still have connect. That's how, you know, teachers that have USB flash drives, you know, connect. And it's just a whole uh, separate thing to track with IT and, and keep it, you know, spares of and things like that if you're going to need to have all those so separate adapters. So it's still a mess, and I don't think it's going to improve really quickly. Okay, great. Where to next? Hey, uh, let's go down to the privacy, and I want to talk about a Wired article from January 21st that said, could this plan make Facebook obsolete? We've talked about privacy quite a bit on the show before, and uh, this article talks about um, Kalia Young, who has a plan to try and make our digital identities something that we actually have, you know, can manage and can take from from place to place. So just like the, the internet's built on standards like TCP IP uh, for data and SMTP for email, um, she is wanting to have standards developed and then, you know, adopted by consortiums and, and internet task forces that, you know, would legitimize them and, and possibly even enforce them. And so she wants a, a decentralized system where it's not something that Apple controls or Amazon or Google um, and it basically puts puts us in control as uh, as consumers. And so her initiative is called um, SSI, and um, it is a it's a project that I think I don't I don't know the the, the things that monetize and that bring money are certainly going to be the ones that are pushed I guess by the by the tech companies. And so I don't know that there is a financial incentive at this point for companies to adopt something like this, but I would certainly love it if just like running our credit report, you know, we can find out what credit agencies know about us, what kinds of things have been filed. You know, it's an opaque cloud today. What data do companies have about me? What do they think, you know, I like? What what kinds of things have they recorded? I, I do not have visibility into that cloud. Unless, I mean, there's, we, we talked about Manoush Samarodi and the Note to Self podcast. They, they were referenced some really amazing privacy projects where like there was a Firefox extension, I think, that someone had created that, you know, took a look at your Facebook uh, profile and said, this is what, you know, Facebook thinks they know about you, et cetera. But I think this is, th- these kinds of, uh, of initiatives. Um, she has something called, I guess it was back in 2005. Um, she founded the internet identity workshop with Phil Windley and doc Sorrells. 
and then they, you know, get together for conferences and they're, they're trying to work on this SSI. SSI stands for self-sovereign identity, a technology that uses decentralized identifiers that people create and own and verifiable credentials issued to them and under their control. So reminds me a little bit of, uh, early in, well, not early, but just, uh, PGP. Uh, did you ever play with pretty good privacy? So you'd yeah, you know, yeah. register on a site and you would create keys and there'd be a private key and a, and a uh, public key. And I, again, like my friend Miguel Gulen, it's like about the only time I've exchanged things back and forth. I'd write a little secret message and then, you know, you'd have the other person's public key and then they could decrypt it and read it. But anyway, it reminds a little bit about that. So thoughts about this, Jason? And is this something we should be, you know, waving the flag for in, in school to, or, or maybe as consumers, as citizens? You know, are you forming an interest group there in Montana to, uh, you know, petition the government and, and lead us in a new direction when it comes to privacy and identity management? Well, I, I think the, the, uh, of all the, the many interesting things you said there, I think the one that is the most interesting to me is that I do think that maybe we are owed privacy reports that says who has our data and what they're using it for, much like a credit report. That's an incredibly interesting notion to me. And in fact, because the credit report has such an impact on us financially, that's one of the reasons why we have, we have access to that information. And I think we're getting to a point that our personal data does have that value to it, right? That, um, it, it there are cases where uh, uh, personal information on the internet can increase or lower prices depending on what other websites that you visit. The websites that utilize uh, kind of personalized pricing can sometimes create uh, weird situations where if you are constantly going to luxury websites, you may be charged a higher price than if you are going to a more bargain-based websites and that sort of thing. And if it's going to impact us in that way, I think we're owed a more transparent way of getting that data. And I didn't put the article uh, in this week, and I intend to, but I want to find more, find out more about it so I can speak from authority. Chrome has announced that in 2022, they're going to get rid of tracking cookies as a means of allowing for tracking on the internet. And um, I'm trying to understand exactly what that means, because to be clear, I'm not sure if experts in privacy understand 100% of what that means yet. It's third-party tracking uh, tools. So my understanding of that is, and I think we had a link into, into it two weeks ago, um, they're going to still have Google tracking, but they're not going to be allowing these third-party trackers within three years. So that right. we were talking about browsers. In fact, you might want to do that article I saw that you about you know I'm feeling guilty using the you know Edge on Mac or whatever. Right. We're talking about browsers because that's a reason that Edge and Safari and Firefox you know may be preferable to folks is because they can block those those uh, third-party trackers today, where Chrome is saying. You know, officially, they're going to wait a few years. Do you want to talk about that Edge article? Yeah. So we had mentioned on the on the last episode that Microsoft Edge, the new version of Microsoft Edge, has been released for Windows and Mac. And there are a ton of interesting articles that have come after that, including one gentleman who downloaded on his Mac and said that he is surprised how great it is. And then some other folks are looking at the bigger picture of browsers that um, this probably means that in the end, and, and there's been rumors that Safari might become Chrome-based at some point, but allow Google, I'm sorry, I should say, allow the open source project that Google manages to create the de facto standard for web browsers because they release that to the public for free, uh, including other companies want to build on top of it. And then the differential becomes what those browsers can do for you in terms of extra services. And although um, I don't think Microsoft has a corner on 
privacy, right? They own advertising companies. They utilize tracking technologies. I'm not sure if, if they, you can say that they are remarkably better at this than our, our friends at the Google about this. But I would say that from all the media I'm reading that the, the Edge browser, which is now uh, installed on my, uh, my uh, Windows box at work and I haven't put it on, I just have older Macs around now and I haven't put it on there yet, although I hear it's nice and crisp. But one of the features they're touting is privacy features. And uh, that becomes an interesting differential. And certainly if I if if I were an IT director, I would immediately install or force install the new version of Edge because it is so much better and so much more secure than Internet Explorer, which kind of is exists in some way, shape, or form in, in newer versions of Windows 10. And it also does fit really well in the Microsoft universe. So um, Edge so far, I hear a lot of great things about. Maybe we can do some quick quick uh, headlines here, and then we're going to be at the top of the hour already. Um, this is a fast one. Air Force Magazine, January 24th. Space Force, we have a seal. And, yes, it looks just like Star Trek, although <clears throat> the article says that the U.S. Space Command, part of the Air Force, has used this triangular logo, and there's been other other places that are using it. So it does seem a bit surreal that we have uh, a space force that you know is official as part of of our military today um i want to also do a shout out to a great group of links that we'll include in the show notes from peggy george and this is actually from um uh, uh, youth voices um uh, paul allison webinar that she uh saw and, and participated in recently called youth voices in election 2020 <clears throat> the web links, uh, there's one from KQED about election 2020, the future voters project that's on tolerance.org and then letters to the next president, which has the, the number two, but it's letters, the number two president.org. Uh, just, you know, some great resources. And I'll say this, even though we live in a highly polarized environment, right? There's like some kind of trial, I think going on maybe in Washington right now, something I've heard about. Um, we need to be, talking with students about this and talking about the importance of listening to each other. And even though, you know, we have a lot of different opinions about these kinds of things like citizenship and civic education is so important. And there's really important overlays between, you know, technology and civic education as well. Um, some articles you want to do some quick headlines for you? Sure. Lifehacker reports on uh, January 15th that Paris Museums, which is a kind of a loose organization of the many wonderful art institutions in Paris, has released a large collection of 150,000 images of artwork into the public domain. So you can just go to the website, you can search in their database and get high-resolution images of a ton of historical art. So if you are in a history, humanities, art, English language arts classroom, uh, free to use for you and um, uh, a great contribution to open culture. Another pretty interesting article I read in the last two weeks, since we haven't had a show, uh, was from the New York Times on January 17th. And it's called, This is the Guy Who's Taking Away the Likes. And so <clears throat> this is something that that Instagram has been rolling out. And the person they're talking about is named Adam Masseri. Um, he actually came from Facebook and is a good buddy of uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, but part of what they're trying to do, and we've talked about this on the show with wellness, is they're recognizing the incredible power psychologically that social media and likes have and, and recognizing that in order to, I guess, address concerns that are very valid about how, you know, their platform and tools and, and their whole interface is really designed kind of like a slot machine to be able to give, you know, endorphin 
Am I saying that right? Um, boosting chemicals anyway, good brain chemicals in your brain to to be released anyway that maybe they need to, you know, dial this back a little bit. And so this is a very interesting article about that and how they are, you know, responding and just, you know, a little bit of insight into uh, the the thinking of some upper level um, leaders at, at Instagram as well as Facebook. Um, so as it, as it says, the delicate balance, keeping both Facebook and Instagram happy, facing animosity in both camps, um, you know, is, is a real challenge to try to, to balance those kinds of things. I'll say that, you know, today at, within the, living in the tech correction, as we've talked about, if this was when Facebook was, was, you know, proposing the purchase of Instagram, I wonder if they would be able to pull that off. Um, but, but they probably would. I mean, we really haven't had any kind of sea change in terms of corporate um, consolidation and, and things like that. But, you know, there's certainly dangers when competition gets absorbed and, you know, these, these companies have network effects that they get bigger and bigger. And so um, what, uh, what alternatives, what, what's the name of the, I, I joined it. You told me about it and I downloaded it. It's this alternative so yeah, right. <laughs> and of course I remembered so much that I MeWe, uh, MeWe, MeWe. Yeah, yeah. I got the app. Yeah, I haven't logged in since I joined two weeks ago, but maybe I'll log in again tonight and uh, yeah, post something for the three people that are on there that might see it. Yeah, it's hard, hard, hard to shift. All right, well, shall we geek of the weekend? Sure, let's do it. Um, I'll do a quick one. Um, so I I thought I mentioned this before. I didn't find anything in the show notes. Uh, Pebble was a company that started off on Kickstarter to create an e-ink watch, and the early versions were 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 pretty clunky. But um, I uh, like like smartwatches, and my primary use for a smartwatch, although I do like the fitness component to it, is that I like to have it for blood sugar control. And so I have what's called a constant glucose monitor made by a company. Called called Dexcom, and I like to be able to not have to look at my phone to check my blood sugar. And so Pebble was a company that made e-ink smart watches. They were purchased by Fitbit, I think, in 2016. Fitbit promptly shut down the the making of Pebble watches. They took a lot of the technology and involved in other watches, but um, the Pebble community survived, and uh, the the newer versions of the watches, and by newer I mean the the ones they released before they were shut down, um, are have long battery life, four to five days of battery life. They have apps on them, and they are a, a good quality. Uh, a product. The problem, of course, was they shut down the servers, so you couldn't do uh, anything anymore with it, like install apps or, or even do much beyond basic watch functionality. Well, as it turns out, the internet is full of crafty people, and a group started a site called Rebel, spelt like Pebble with an R, so referring to the uh, uh, Rebel Alliance, if you will. And Rebel um, allows you to take old Pebble watches and use them on modern Android and iOS devices. And so I purchased this on eBay a couple of weeks ago uh, for like $22. And these originally went for nearly 200 bucks. And it is an e-ink watch. So uh, it has a display that doesn't suck down battery. But the most important thing for me here is that um, uh, my blood sugar is, is dealing with its post-dinner uh, high right now. But um, it has my, my blood sugar. 
on it. So I can always see that information and I was able to install new apps on it. Um, then it works so far. I, it, it's used about 40% of the battery battery in 72 hours. And so I'm really excited about this prospect and it's kind of a nerdy tool, right? Like that, that it's not as flashy as, as more modern day watches, but some of the, the, the recent releases from Pebble before they were shut down, I think is a very attractive watch, not as clunky looking. I think as some other, um, uh, modern smart watches and it's a nice project. I was able to go from not functional to functional in about 20 minutes. And then it's a pleasure to wear on. My arm. So the Project Rebel uh, re-engaging uh, Pebble watches. There you go. And mine is a Today Explained podcast from January twenty fourth. I referenced the Amazon or the yeah the Amazon Jeff Bezos uh, Saudi Arabia situation. And here's where I learned about this. The episode is called "The Crown Prince and the Amazon King." And so. Um, I really think from a media literacy standpoint, it is hugely important for us to talk about how do we try and wade, wade into and discern, you know, what to believe and what to discard and, and what is, you know, conspiracy and what is outlandish and then what is, you know, valid, et cetera. So this is a pretty interesting dive into the world of, uh, as, you know, Jason said, you know, intelligence uh, operations, the ways in which phones and, you know, mobile technology plays into that, how important links are that you click. And the link that I gave to that was actually from Pocket Casts, which remains my favorite podcasting app to listen to. And, you know, shout out to Pocket Cast as well. So there we go. I'm afraid another show is in the can. Um, what what are you doing, Jason, when you're when you're not here? Well, a couple of shout outs. Um, I'm going to be at the Idaho Educational Technology Association Conference next week in Boise, Idaho. I'm presenting uh, three times on Tuesday, uh, once with my partner in crime of, of presentations, Mike Agustinelli from the Digital Academy. It's not too late if you're in the Boise area to jump in that conference. What kind of sessions will you be doing? Um, I'll be doing one session on digital distraction, one session on the six mobile apps every tech savvy teacher should have on their phone, and then one session, the five things every administrator needs to know about their personal technology. Um, I also just found out that um, I will be presenting at DLAC, the Digital Learning um, Annual Conference in uh, Austin at the end of February. Um, uh, I was waitlisted for my presentation, but was recently promoted to a regular session. So I'm really excited about that. I'm presenting on reading there. And the week after that is NCC Seattle 2020 in lovely Seattle, Washington, where I have, I think, seven or eight presentations I'm doing over three days. And so busy, busy times, but please come see me. Uh, introduce yourself if you're a EdTech Situation Room listener. I'd love to connect with folks at any of these variety of events. Okay. You, you can find me on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach or the NCC blog, blog.ncc.org. Fantastic. Have you ever audio recorded some of your sessions, you know, put those up? I have not never put them up. I have audio recorded before, but then I get embarrassed at the ums. <laughs> you know what? Just put it up. It's it's good. I, I I recommend you set up an anchor channel and yeah, throw recordings up there. I I will listen and I promise to not judge, only love. So there you go. Great. On Twitter, my blog is speedofcreativity.org and my um, uh, curriculum for middle division. Lessons for middle schoolers, media literacy, and digital literacy is mdtech.cassidy.org. The final question from the chat, you must respond because we can't let her down. Peggy's given us a question. What are the six mobile apps every teacher should have, Jason? Um, 
Or maybe she should have she should tune into your anchor channel in, in a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, they're categories of apps, but let me see if I can remember these. Um, uh, it's the the presentation's in process. I can tell you the probably most surprising app on there in in in. Uh, well, no, I I'll talk about it in a future episode. There you go. You're gonna get the full episode, folks. You're just gonna have to come back. Do you want to you want to close this? Oh. Up? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, we just end with that. Well, this here is not me being cagey about the six apps every teacher should have on their phone, but rather it's the EdTech Situation Room. We are one uh, once a week podcast that records on Wednesday nights at nine p.m. Central, eight p.m. Mountain Time, three a.m. ish UTC. You can always find us on your favorite podcast app. You can also find us on um, a Stitcher Radio is another location where you can find us. You can go to YouTube and find the video. Uh, uh, episodes there, or you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, you can download show notes, and download all the links we talk about on the show, plus others that we don't have the chance to get to, and you can download teeny tiny MP3s if that's your preference on the phone. Until next time, we encourage you to stay safe and stay savvy, and we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night.